We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Hey, this is Jim Lyon. Welcome to All That To Say. We're so glad you joined us for our podcast. And in this edition, I'm so proud and pleased to welcome as our guest, John Kufos, who has a story to tell. He has an experience that has helped formed and frame his passions. And he has become one of the leading, most influential and persuasive voices for criminal justice reform in the United States. He brings people from all over the political spectrum together to get things done for the good. And John, thank you for joining us today. We know you've got a hundred other things you could do. Thanks for giving us a few minutes today. Great to be with you, Jim. And uh, John is in Washington, D.C., where he lives these days, though he hails from New Jersey. And before we even get into the weeds on some of your work that has been so commanding and influential, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this whole train of thought, your own personal story, which led you yourself to find yourself imprisoned, incarcerated, and from which you have borne this great passion to help others. What's your story, John? Sure. So I, I tell people it's a great story. I just wish it wasn't mine. Um, but so almost uh, 11 years ago to the day, June 17th, 2011, um, my life was a lot different. I was I owned a law firm. I was a certified criminal trial attorney in the state of New Jersey, tried big, big cases, was a civil rights lawyer, pro bono counsel, the NAACP in central Jersey, um, and had all the trappings of success. But Sitting behind that, Jim, was a completely functional alcoholic, completely functional. Uh, I had been drinking at that point for 20 years, uh, literally since I was 15 years old. Um, And on the night of June 17th, uh, 2011, uh, I was driving drunk. And sadly, Jim, I drove drunk lots of times. uh, And but this time it would end with near fatal consequences for another innocent person. I was driving drunk. uh, I hit somebody. Uh, and then I left and tried to lie my way out of it till I came down off the bender two, three days later when I turned myself in. And, and Jim, thank the good Lord, that person lived, that person recovered, went on to, you know, lead a, you know, lead, you know, they're not in a vegetative state, they're not in a wheelchair. Um, by the way, I don't want to be very clear. Nothing I did helped that. Everything I did militated towards that, towards a, a, a fatal outcome, right? I, 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 the fact that that person, you know, was able to recover has, as that, that's in spite of me. Right. And right, I want right, to be really clear right. about that. Um, nothing I did contributed to that. Um, and everything I did took away from that. Um, but that would, uh, that would cap, uh, or, or that would cap my career as a lawyer. Um, and from there I pled guilty first appearance. They would let me plead guilty at, at pled guilty. Wasn't going to go through a trial. Um, and made sure actually I, I, my lawyer wanted to, to string me up because I went and, and told the insurance company what had happened to make sure money could get to the victim before I even had a deal, um, which if you know any criminal defense lawyers, I tell you that's about the most foolish strategy you can do. But if I was really going to try to, to travel a road of redemption and, and atone for what I did, um, it had to start with honesty. So. And, you know, it was it was, you know, a fascinating sort of undercurrent to this whole story is, you know, I came from a criminal family. My father was in and out of federal prison and state prison. My father actually escaped from federal custody. First time I was ever in Oregon uh, over by uh, on the West Coast was when my dad was on the run from the feds. Um, mm. And uh, as a kid, we, I got dragged around the country doing that. But, you know, I don't use that as an excuse. I just always found it, you know, when they talk about generational imprisonment, you, you know, most people just assume it's, you know, you know, your father is a drug dealer and you're in poverty. So you're going to be a drug dealer. I never thought of it as your father was a professional criminal, John. You chose a different path, but you, too, were committing crimes every single time you drove drunk. You just didn't realize it. And then ultimately you nearly killed somebody. So I would plead guilty. In fact, my last case as a lawyer, I think, was before the New Jersey Supreme Court. I had a 
I was out on $150,000 bail. Um, but I, you know, uh, but my client, <laughs> well, because I, uh, you know, I served him well, I guess. Are you telling me that after, after the accident and you're engaged in a legal process where you're going to become incarcerated, you're out on bail arguing a case at the New Jersey State Supreme Court? I mean, it's amazing. Yep. First, yeah. So, so yeah, no, I was, I was already indicted um, and, uh, and I was waiting to plead guilty and because uh, they hadn't given me a first court date yet. But my client was, was very adamant that I represent him before the Supreme Court on a big search and seizure case. Now, obviously, I didn't want to do that because... Here I am, you know, trying to, to figure out everything that had gone on. But, you know, it wasn't the client's fault that I was a, a, a screw up, to put it mildly. Right. It wasn't the client's fault that I did that. And I had a duty to the client. So there I am out in $150,000 bail. I'm this high profile. Yeah, I've done high profile gang and organized crime cases and whatnot. And there I am before the Supreme Court out on bail arguing before them. Uh, I won. We won the case, uh, although I didn't find out, you know, you don't get the decision like in the movies mm -hmm. at the end of the Supreme Court hearing. Uh, it was many months later, eight, nine months later, I got a, a letter in the mail or that uh, the decision in the mail, excuse me, when I was at Mid-State Correctional Facility as an inmate, so, uh, letting me know I won and that my client was going to be uh, was not going to be prosecuted for that because of illegal search and seizure. So um I guess I was still making hits from beyond the grave, right? Like Tupac in that, in that respect. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, already you've 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 told the story of film. I mean, who's going to play you in the uh, in the biopic? Because here you are, a person who you've already disclosed grew up in a house where there was some criminal uh, intersections, but you went on to school. You got a law degree from Fordham. I mean, this is a top tier uh, law school. You. You have criminal justice degrees. You you have a profitable uh, practice. You have prominence, and I'm guessing, John, right now you're you've got to be in about your mid forties. So ten years down back, you're in your mid thirties. Have already achieved a lot of success, and and yet there's a moment of figuratively and literally, your life crashed, and that puts you behind bars. Incredibly, I, I just have to ask sentenced to six years, as I understand it, for the crime, although released a little bit early. What was that like when you found yourself walking in to a prison? What was going through your head? So before, let me let me tell you, even before we, we talk about what yeah. was going through my head, where the, the courtroom I was sentenced from is a courtroom where some of the biggest victories in my career had happened. It was in a courthouse where I started my career as a law clerk. So to now be marched down the hallway in handcuffs uh, from there mm. was was the first thing to deal with um, psychologically. Uh, but I earned that. Candid, I earned that from my crimes. I make no bones about it. Um then when I got, interestingly enough, when I got to county, because in New Jersey, in a lot of places, you go to the county jail before the central transportation unit picks you up to transport you to state prison. Um, two things happened simultaneously. The first was obviously fear when the door closes behind you. I'd gotten through my strip search and whatever else they do. And uh, then the door closes and that's, that's it. The other thing, believe it or not, and this only lasted for about two days, was was relief, was relief mm. that it was finally behind me. I finally began to pay down. I was finally beginning to pay down some of the debt. And for me, that that was really, really important. But then, of course, that turned into fear um, because I was in county for, I was only in county for five days. So nobody really wanted me, right? Because I was mm. this high profile gang organized crime lawyer. Everybody knew I was. Interestingly enough, the prison thought I was going to have a problem with the inmates. I didn't expect that at all. I mean, you know, if, if anything, I was a pillar of, of those communities, right? And 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 candidly represent a lot of people who are wrongfully accused and things of that nature. So I wasn't concerned about the community or the inmates. Um, the prison, you know, was worried, but of course that makes sense, right? A lot of lawyers would get jammed up if stolen money from clients and done those things. So they go on the unit and they got to worry about getting stabbed. I wasn't necessarily worried about that. Um, my experience in prison was, everything my clients told me it would be. And that, that was a real eye opener because here I was, I come from a father who, you know, had been in that, in that a prison. So I'd visited prisons and jails as a kid. I had been in a lot of prisons and jails as a practicing lawyer. Um, but there is nothing like when that door closes behind you and you're locked in there. 
So my, I was sent first, I went to a place called mid state on a military base. Um, then I was transferred to a place called Bayside and Bayside state prison is uniformly known as the worst in New Jersey. Um, it was a place that my clients were afraid to go. My clients, you know, these weren't guys with a bag of weed, you know what I mean? So uh, they were afraid. So when I found out I was getting transferred to mid, uh, Bayside, I turned about as white as his shirt. And uh, and then Bayside was every bit as horrible as they said it would be. Um, but I'll tell you, Jim, you know, in in a place like prison, you see the absolute worst in all people, in your in the inmates, in the guards, the officers, in the administration. But you also see the best in a lot of people in a place you'd never expect it, the inmates, the guards, and in some cases, the administration. Um, like I'll tell you, you know, the officer that was on my work de- detail in Bayside, you know, had no reason to care about my recovery, care about what I was doing, but did, you know, and, and, and one of the, the thing I pulled from prison most was, and I grew up poor, so I knew poverty, but what was interesting to me was that when I was locked up, Jim, nobody asked me for money, but nearly everybody asked me for a job. And I was an inmate just like them, mm-hmm. but they had assumed that, you know, because I was a guy who could pick up the phone that I could help them get a job down the road. And it, it never, that I, I never would have expected that conversation. I would assume if you said, what would like to go to jail? People can try to shake you down. Now, what they didn't know is that I was going, I, my house was being foreclosed upon. I was going bankrupt and losing everything. So I really didn't have anything to give, even if they tried to shake me down, <laughs> but to, in prison, you know, 50 bucks is a lot of money. So that always stuck with me. And when you lock with a man, Jim, you know, you learn a lot about him. You learn mm. the overwhelming majority, not a hundred percent, but nothing's a hundred percent. The overwhelming majority of people I encountered want to reunify with their families. They want to pay child support. They want to take care of their kids. They want to work. They see no path. I'm not saying a path doesn't exist. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it does exist. All I'm saying is they don't see it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that, uh, is the answer to my next question is what is it that most people who have never been to prison misunderstand about the experience behind bars? What would you say to, to a public that has only seen television shows and, and they misunderstand really what it's like or what is the misinformation that we have, our, our misperception of what it's like? Sure. I think that there's a misperception out there that, that prison's easy. Right. Mm. And, and I think that that really a lot of people seem to oh, you only got six years. You only got 10 years. Oh, you only got three years. Listen, people need to understand that when you're in prison, first of all, the purpose of prison is a deprivation of freedom. And in, in our country, the deprivation of freedom is supposed to be the punishment. That doesn't mean a deprivation of freedom plus dungeon, plus beatings, plus rapes, plus, uh, you know, horrible conditions. Right. The deprivation of freedom, period, full stop, is supposed to be the sentence, but that's not what it is. The other thing, so that's on the, so it's a constant state of, of you're on edge, you're afraid, et cetera, not just of your fellow inmates, but of, you, you know, the, the the guards and the administration. So the other thing, and, and, and I think so that's number one. I think number two, prison is like watching a clock that never moves. So what happens is, you know, Jim, you and I have been chatting for you know, even off camera since, you know, maybe a half hour. And it, to me, it's just zipped by, right? Right. In prison, that same half hour will feel like five hours, right? You're watching a clock that never moves. And the, the, the amount of, I want to say boredom, but the amount of idle time in a facility that could be so much better utilized for training, for addiction treatment or whatever might a uh, person might need to make sure they don't come back there's a lot of missed opportunities in most prisons in this country. Not all, but most. Not to divert from your story, but uh, I'm a person who was uh, adopted and I've become very well acquainted with my birth family uh, from Ireland. And my, my father, by birth, was active in the Irish Republican Army and was imprisoned by the British uh, for a seven-year sentence at Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast. I've been to that place, and I, I'm just reflecting, based on what you've said, that so is corroborated by my birth father, his name was Edward, Edward's story. And his whole lifetime was so deeply framed by that experience uh, of those years. And seven years sounds like a long time to me when I think about seven Christmases 
or seven birthdays. I mean, it, it does have length, but again, if you haven't lived it, you don't really know how long it is to stare at the wall. And uh, man, thanks for helping unpack that because when someone goes to prison, even though the public may feel like, well, they earned it, or you've said, I earned it or deserved it, uh, although we know that some people are uh, convicted wrongly, uh, it still doesn't mitigate the reality of the impact and the deprivation and the formation that happens there. And I'm hearing you say kind of a segue there too, that a lot of things might happen in that space and time differently than they do now to help provide truly uh, redemption in a way that is hard to come by, which, which brings me actually to the headline of John Kufos, who found himself... <laughs> Uh, at the White House with President Donald Trump and a what, what I'll call almost a star-studded cast of characters at the signing some legislation that you deeply, deeply believed in and helped bring to life called the First Step Act, which is uh, the First Step Act of 2018 is actually a, a uh, a re-upping of a Second Chance Act from 2008, which was designed to reform and and fix some broken places in a 1968 law about uh, crime prevention and safe streets and so on. I mean, there's a, there's a history to all of that. But the First Step Act really was revolutionary in our time. And uh, as I've looked at that, I, I, I just have to say for our audience who, who may not remember it in particular, but as I've looked at the story, I mean, this was an unusual convergence of, of an amazing a stage crew that nobody could have brought together except a cause like this. So you've got a senator from New Jersey like Cory Booker, who's generally seen at one end of the political spectrum. You've got someone like Doug Collins, who's a representative from Illinois Republican, who has a, has a different vibe politically. And then you've got Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, and you have Jared Kushner working in the background, and John Lewis, legendary civil rights uh, representative from uh, Georgia. And Van Jones uh, worked in the Obama White House on television, talking head. You have the Murdoch family getting knocked on the door so that Fox might give a little attention to this. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. There with Donald Trump in the White House, people from both sides of the aisle, from vastly different perspectives and positions, rallying around this First Step Act. I'm asking you two questions now, John. First, how would you get involved? How did you get there in terms of that particular process? And two, what does the First Step Act do? Why does it matter so much? Sure. So, uh, so I'll take the second one first. So the First Step Act is by far the most consequential piece of criminal justice legislation in 30 years. So it does a number of different things. You outlined some of them, but uh, it, it right-sizes uh, certain sentences. It allows people uh, to serve certain parts of the end of their sentence on home confinement as opposed to just sitting in the prison the whole time. It allows people to, earn, to get to that point to earn uh, additional pre-release custody credits, right? And also does things like... Uh, it ex greatly expanded, thanks to Senator Brian Schatz's leadership, Democrat of Hawaii, uh, who was a big push to put this in the First Step Act, expand compassionate release, right? So if someone is, is sick or has a family member that's sick in prison and they're no longer a public safety threat, uh, that they could come out early on very strict conditions, don't get me wrong, very strict conditions. So that way they could either die at home, convalesce so they don't have to die at all, take care of people who might be dying at home. So uh, things and things as sort of mundane as making sure the Bureau of Prisons gets someone an identification before they leave. You know, we had to get that written in. So and what it does is, is uh, it prevented things like stacking. Right. So stacking was the normal thing where if you had a single indictment, say you had two drug charges and a gun and you were found guilty, they'd run all three sentences consecutive. So you'd find first offenders getting 50, 60, 70 years constructive life. So it, the First Step Act addressed all of these things in one way, shape, or form. So how I got there, uh, to make it to, to make the story even odder, you know, I, you know, I, I, I myself come, like I said, from New Jersey, uh, a former governor of New Jersey, Jim McGreevy, a big Democrat, 
very, very interested in prisoner reentry is what it was termed at back then, right? To justice and for justice involved people. Governor McGreevy and I have a chance meeting. I didn't know a single politician, uh, candidly, I make the joke, you know, I didn't know a single politician thought I was a felon. So I guess in New Jersey, that's probably common, but you know, in other more civilized places in the world, it isn't. But, um, you know, I had the opportunity, you know, God put me, me to in a position to meet Governor McGreevy, who had a tremendous Rolodex, obviously, and a tremendous vision that he wanted to see uh, reentry programs built around New Jersey. Um, and, uh, you know, Jim and I, Governor McGreevy and I got together and uh, put together a nonprofit uh, where he was our chairman. Uh, he's now the chairman and CEO. Now that I've left, I was the executive director. Um, and uh, and what and we built a very, very big program in New Jersey. Thanks to Jim, Governor McGreevy's leadership. Every living governor was on the board of directors of the New Jersey Reentry Corporation, which was a nonprofit. And that work in workforce development, right? Because my job was getting jobs. I used to joke with Governor McGreevy because Governor McGreevy obviously, you know, takes a very spiritual, uh, spiritual root in this. And, you know, we'd be in with businesses and he'd be going on uh, about the spiritual side of it. And I used to say, Gov, like, little less Jesus, a little more jobs here, right? We got to get people to work, right? <laughs> Even though, obviously, I understand the two are deeply intertwined. But um, the workforce development work got me noticed uh, by folks in Washington, D.C., uh, Coke Industries, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, the uh, Coke Industries, you know, is has been at the forefront of criminal justice reform and second chance hiring for a long, long, long time. Um, and Candidly, when people around the country saw Coke Industries doing second chance hiring, getting behind, they said, well, if they do it. Why can't we? So there was a there was momentum started by Coke. And so Coke asked me if I would come to D.C. to help run something called the Safe Streets and Second Chances Project. And what that was, that was a project housed at the Texas Public Policy Foundation's Right on Crime Center. Uh, right on Crime is, is and TPPF, one of the pre preeminent conservative think tanks uh, in the country. So it was a surprise to me when I was asked to meet with them because I was not one of the preeminent conservatives in the country. Right? Right. Here I am, like right down the middle of the road kind of guy, um, but very, very big on public safety, very big on personal responsibility. Obviously, that's part of my journey. Very big on jobs and prosperity and removing barriers to prosperity. Um, so we speak the same language. Uh, so this was a project with Right on Crime and Florida State University, our research partner. And what we did was, uh, I mean, we changed laws all over the country. First Step Act was just one of them. You know, we did laws in Mississippi and other places. But it was, Safe Street Second Chances was the largest randomized control trial in a prison of its time to test uh, something that Florida State was developing called a five key model of reentry, which is, we could have a whole show about that. But anyway, uh, one of the, my first day at T-Bed Right on Crime, actually, it wasn't even my first day. I, my first day was December 17th. So it was two weeks before my first day. I was asked to come to a meeting at the White House. Um, so I took a day off from Governor McGreevy and said, hey, the new job needs me to go to the White House. So um, now I had met President Obama. In fact, President Obama toured uh, our New Jersey Reentry Corporation partner program with us uh, back in 15. So I'm probably the only guy with a picture of President Obama and many pictures of President Trump <laughs> anywhere. Um but my first day in that room were leading criminal justice advocates and Jared Kushner. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, we started talking about what at that point was something called the Corrections Act that John, Senator John Cornyn from Texas had proposed. And all that was was a prison reform bill. And it was a very good prison reform bill. But, you know, the, the White House wanted to go farther and then we helped them go farther. Right. We generated big conservative support. Big Democrat support, help overcome certain barriers along the way. And uh, and yeah, then I find myself, you know, two hours before the government shut down in 18. Um, I had been in a number of meetings at the White House and other places around the country with with President Trump uh, and his administration, as well as governors across the country building support for governor, you know, because governors mm -hmm. uh, were starting to adopt state analogs to the to what would become the First Step Act. And uh and then from there, they signed it into law. I had the chance to speak to the president. And we also did second chance hiring events where the president brought together folks like Kim Kardashian. I was on stage with Kim Kardashian, Marcus Bullock, who's famous guy, started Flick Shop uh, and, and some other advocates. And there I was speaking about second chance hiring with the president, both in the Oval Office and on stage. And uh, and no, it, it was something that 
First of all, I never would have thought I'd be in there because candidly, I have a criminal record, number one. But number two, I think that people really, really learned in the, in, during, at that time that the idea that one party was going to own the criminal justice movement was over, was mm-hmm. over. And, and I think that that upset a lot of people on the left. I think the bill upset a lot of people on the hard right as well. I mean, there were 11 no's in the Senate, only 11 no's, but those were 11 very, very staunch Republican, hard on crime folks. And I think that what we tried to show the country and what I think I think was was done really well is the fact that nobody in prison cares if President Obama's in office or if President Trump's in office or President Biden or anybody else, right? They care is someone doing something that's going to help us in some way. Right. <laughs> right. And I think it was a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people that Trump was that vehicle. And that he read in a lot of people get really angry about it. But, you know, if if we used to be in a race to the bottom to see who could be tougher, Trump certainly showed that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, there's a race to the top to who could be smarter on crime. And, you know, wow, there's so much there to that makes my mon- my mind run with questions. But I have to go back to a phrase, the name of initiative, the safe streets and second chances. I mean, that's very descriptive. Help us understand uh, how those two connect, safe streets and second chances. Because a lot of people would say, well, I'm compassionate and I care about these people, so unfortunate about the bad choices they made, like John, and you know what, tough, but why should I be motivated? What's in it for me, if people could be that crass, to care about a second chance for someone who's been incarcerated? How does safe streets and second chances work together? Because I'll say this, you know, we live in an age right now, right now, the, the country's conversation is sizzling with talk about crime and increasing crime rates and so on. Is what you're talking about actually an answer? Oh, it certainly is. So, so second chances done properly lead to a job, create safe streets. It's, it's that simple. And, and for folks that some folks do have a hard time wrapping their heads around this, but so I'll borrow, let's borrow a theory from healthcare, right? In healthcare, we know that by zip code, right? We can pretty much tell by zip code how healthy or unhealthy you're going to be. Right. So if we know everybody from a particular zip code, if we know a great majority of people from a particular zip code all have diabetes and heart disease, if we don't treat that zip code, they're going to continue to have diabetes and heart disease, continue to probably not engage with insurance and continue to drive up the cost of health care. If we know, but if we target those utilizers, we'll make healthier people who can contribute to society. Right. So so what you have here is if you look at the number of admissions around the country in a prison. The overwhelming majority are are not first time offenders. They're not. They're people who have offenses in the past. So the appropriate answer to that is an effective reentry program, i.e., a second chance, right? That addresses addiction treatment, that addresses mental health, that addresses housing, that addresses workforce training, is going to make it so that person never goes back to crime again. And what I would say to people say, what's in it for me? It might be your own safety. Because, right, if, if I use myself as an example, right, if I didn't decide to clean myself up and the New Jersey State Parole Board gave me really good supports to do that through addiction treatment, but if I decided not to, to clean myself up and continue to drive drunk, well, we know what can happen or worse if I've proven it to the world, right? So I think the world is much happier with John Kufos, right, who has alcoholism under control than John Kufos is driving drunk. Now apply that to anybody in any particular crime fashion. So you might, if, if for a person who say, well, I don't want them to have a second chance, or I don't care if they have a second chance, you probably should, because it by, by doing this right, we prevent tomorrow's victims. And that's why I do what I do, Jim, because look, I can't build a time machine. I guess maybe Elon Musk one day will build a time yeah. machine. Right? If anybody's <laughs> well, gonna build, probably Elon. And if I ever get the chance to meet Elon, I'm gonna ask him to build me one. Don't get me wrong, I'll even, yeah. I'll even help him out. But until Elon builds that time machine that I can go back and not hit that person with my car on June 17th, uh, 2011, the next best thing I can do is try to prevent tomorrow's victims. And that's where safe streets and second chances weave together. I thought it was a great name. I didn't make that name up. I wish I could take credit for it. But those two are tied together inextric- you know, they're, they're 
they're impossible to pull apart from each other. Now, of course, the thing is, second chances doesn't mean, hey, I forgive you. You got a second chance. Now go do whatever it is you were doing before. <laughs> second right, chances right. means creating a yeah. reentry structure, right? And creating policies and structures that create that allow you, if you want a second chance and if you pursue a second chance, that you can go and get a second chance to redeem yourself. And the legislation that you've worked on so tirelessly helps make that more likely than it was before. Sure. I mean, that's why First Step sure. Act is so important. And actually, there, there's talk of a Second Step Act or a Next Chapter Act. I mean, there are all kinds of things uh, that people are always working to see how do we enhance and hone this to make it better. But fundamentally, it sounds to me, John, like you're talking about not only uh, a social outcome that is more healthy than not giving people a second chance. Uh, it's also, it's a very redemptive thing. I mean, now, so ideology and theology sometimes intersect and right here, that's intersecting in my mind. There's, there are political ideologies, which we've already referenced, different approaches to community challenges and so on. Uh, there are theological underpinnings to the way in which we approach life. And when I say theology, what, what people think about God or what they think about themselves or think about their spiritual self, their true inner self, and how that relates to the, uh, a world and a world for people who believe in the God, that there are some impacts. All right, so second chance, as you've described it, is really about repentance. It's about redemption with a choice to go a different direction than the one I used to with travel. With appropriate services, right? Yeah, right? right. With appropriate services to get there. Let me just throw one number, one stat at you, right? And I, I, I try not to be the guy that, you know, puts everyone to sleep in these things. By <laughs> no, no, you're right endless on. amounts of numbers. So, so right now, as you and I are speaking, Jim, 95% of everybody, 95%, some people have it at 97%. So let's go to 95, low number. 95% of everybody sitting in a prison cell right now is coming home. So if, if that should scare you, mm -hmm. right? If they come home, no better than when they went in. Or that worse. should scare you a lot. It, it's right. Or God forbid, worse, which normally happens. However, if we can provide the structure for them to do better, right? And I'm not talking do better in the sense that, uh, you know, everybody feels good and, you know, as a kumbaya, you know, circle. I'm talking about job development engine better, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that that is, this is the time for this because, you know, look at, look at the labor statistics, right? We have record job openings in this country. The great resignation has a hold on almost every industry, yet you have this whole group of untapped talent that is sitting here. Now, if you can convert people who handle the issues that put them in prison, get the training to, to, to work and build themselves up, you're creating a tax base from a tax drain, right? You're doing these things and in a way that strengthens communities by strengthening people. That's the really exciting part of this work. And so talk to me about what I can do or talk to me as the everyman. <laughs> Uh, given these realities and, and the overwhelming statistical reality, because I, I know of what you speak in terms of 95% uh, of those people are going to get out of jail someday, and then what? And when we worry about crime, it's not always recidivism. There are always original people, original uh, folks who step out of the, the boundaries of legal conduct. But what can I do? What can we do? How do we come alongside what does the, one, the First Step Act is, is a federal law that helps allocate resources for the whole machinery of criminal justice in our country to help provide some uh, opportunities. But for those of us who are not in the federal government, what should we do? Yeah, and I, well, I think, you know, one of the, the most fascinating parts of the First Step Act was the effect it had on states. So states... Right. Many states that would never consider criminal justice reform before now started passing, you know, similar mm -hmm. type of laws. Right. Uh, so I think but as th the first place a person can make a difference, it's always local. Right. Always local. And I think that, you know, 
employers, right? People who, who, who talk to employers need to understand or need to, to convey the message that if you have people with records working in appropriate employment, I'm not talking about sex offenders in child care centers or people okay, in active right. addiction at the pharmacy next to the, <laughs> next to the Percocet, right? Yeah. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people in appropriate job titles matching to, you know, their mm-hmm. criminal history, uh, that that's a benefit for the business, that you're excited about the business doing that. When your governors take the courage to pardon people and grant clemency, as Kate Brown has done in Oregon, as Asa Hutchinson has done in Arkansas, as so many have done, you know, uplift those governors, get them excited about about that, get them excited about driving criminal justice reform. Like in New Jersey, right? Well, Chris Christie did a great job on criminal justice reform. Phil Murphy does an even better job on criminal justice reform, right? Our last two governors, we keep moving up the ladder. So I think at the, at the, and I think to understand the nuance, there's a, we hear a lot of conversation today about bail reform, right? And candidly, the best bail reform system in the country is in New Jersey. It is the model for the rest of the country. No cash bail, but serious risk assessment, right? So if you are a risk to, to society, you don't get out, you get out in very strict conditions. And if you're not a risk to society, you do get out with conditions, but you're not held ransom by cash bail. Some jurisdictions have created a system where there's essentially no meaningful bail system. So what happens is you have people in active addiction, active mental health crises going in to a county jail on an arrest pre-trial and coming out and committing another offense. That's what we're hearing. The people that I I work for or work with, excuse me, I work for the people with criminal (laughs) records, done time, people with historical felony records. That's not this population. Those people on granted home confinement or granted early release have recidivism rates in the single digits, right? They're the ones not out there mm-hmm. committing these problems. So I think the average Joe or average Jane needs to understand that there's a real nuance there between your post-incarceration population on the reentry side, on the mm-hmm. second chance side, mm-hmm. and the folks arrested who may still be in active addiction. Mm-hmm having a 12 hour stay in the County jail and being dumped back on the streets with no services and then going out and committing an even more heinous crime. Those two things are getting melded like this, Jim. And that is becoming one of the worst things we have to overcome in the criminal justice movement. It's the prejudice uh, based on not understanding the differences in those categories of, uh, uh, lawbreakers, let's say, right. That's what you're saying that. Well, and justifiable. Yeah, yeah, justifiable I mean, fear. The justifiable I'm fear. I'm one of the but... only guys. Right, I'm one of the only guys. Jim has done time that'll say, "Listen, I don't like walking around New York City. I went to college. I went to law school there. I grew up there. I watched it in the '70s and '80s. You know, I watched mm-hmm. it or '80s actually. Excuse me. I watched it be a real rough place, and I watched it be a real safe place. And now it's a perception of safety of people getting thrown in front of trains. Right? You can't. That that didn't happen ten years ago. And whether it's a one off or not. This perception of safety is critical to the fabric of of the criminal justice movement. So people need to understand that the intervention for that Mm -hmm. is in no way related to the intervention for the people who are coming out of prison. And and that's where the only because nobody nobody's coming out of prison, Bayside State Prison and going and hitting someone with a brick in Times Square. Right. Candidly, it's someone who's been might have been in prison a long time ago, but is in the throes of, of whatever their mm-hmm. mental health crisis is, whatever their addiction issue is, and they're not being handled the right way at the front end. What I'm talking about is back end reform. Yep. And that's why my use of the term prejudice is the prejudice against all persons who may have had their fingerprints taken. Uh, they're, they're right. diff- there are different categories and experiences and journeys. And there for second chance, that's really about people who've already done time and they have paid some dues. And how do we help them uh, stabilize and be productive and fruitful and whole coming out? That's what you're about. So tell me, what are you doing right now? What's, What's today's news? Well, I have a bunch of different projects going on. So I've been, uh, I'm working with Alice Marie Johnson. You may remember Alice Marie was uh, first time nonviolent uh, and caught in a drug conspiracy. Again, first time nonviolent due to the sentencing structure time got life, right? So mm-hmm. uh, did 22 years. Kim Kardashian took note of her case, brought Alice's case to Trump. President Trump, who he was their first commutation, let her out. And Alice has gone on to be one of the national, you know, if not international mm-hmm. leaders, but uh, on on 
on the need for right-sizing sentences. Published a great book called Afterlife that people should check out. Uh, so I'm doing a project with Alice focused on clemency. Um, and Alice, you know, people think that Alice, because President Trump let her out, is, you know, this hard Republican. Alice is mission-driven, committed to the mission, committed to the people. So when it came time to talk, to, to reach out to Governor Brown in Oregon, Governor Polis in Colorado, or Governor Stitt in Oklahoma, or Governor Wolf in PA, or Governor Murphy in Jersey, Alice was there for all of them. And you're just, and, and for and, people who don't know, you've just described a very big quilt of different people and personalities and political postures. Yep. yep. And she's there for all of it right. for the cause. Yep. Right. So I'm doing a project with Alice, um, uh, standing up her nonprofit to help advance clemency specifically. Right. Because there's no better spokesperson in this country for the need for smart clemency commutation uh, at the governor and presidential level than Alice Johnson. Alice lived it. Uh, I'm also doing a project with uh, with uh, uh, Florida State University and a nonprofit called Wellbeing equity and innovations. This is more of a documentary. So it's a documentary to train uh, really businesses on the ben on how to hire right, sec uh, how to hire second, to do second chance hiring, right, excuse me, and second chance retention. Because a job is fantastic, a career is better. Uh, I'm doing that project. I'm doing a project on bail reform as well. Uh, and then I'm doing a lot of stuff in the healthcare space. So one of my big passions I've worked on very quietly is how do we streamline the social determinants of health, right? So in, in other words, you know, your access to putting criminal justice involvement aside, your access to housing, your access to healthy food, your access to clean water, your access to a number of things that dictate how healthy you are. Now overlay the criminal justice system on that. So I'm doing uh, work with a number of healthcare organizations on that too, to, to create uh, healthier pathways for people uh, in prison, because again, when they get out, they become the utilizer, the heavy utilizer of the healthcare system as well. And of course, a healthy person is going to be more job ready. You said uh, earlier in the conversation, you just kind of made a, a, a point by saying, God put me in the path of Governor Murphy or, or no, McGreevy, right? Uh, Yes. And, you know, God put me there. I mean, it, it's, it's a turn of a phrase, but your whole life uh, story that you've unpacked for us here is about extraordinary overcoming, really. I mean, we, we didn't even talk about how you walked away from alcohol, which surely you've done given the, mm. the crash. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that for many people, that's a Herculean effort uh, that would define their whole life. And we haven't even talked about, you've overcome that. You've <laughs> overcome a criminal record. You have made huge strides to benefit other persons. I mean, there has to be some kind of, of spirit inside of you, John, that is supernatural, or it's just not cut from ordinary cloth. What would you say about that? I would say, you know, the, the, I guess, you know, part of it is I've always been a fighter, right. My whole life, because I always had to be a fighter. So whatever was put in front of me that I had to overcome, I always tried, you know, I always tried to, to, for lack of a better word, you know, mm -hmm. metaphysically, psychologically right, punch my right. way out of it. Right. You're going to win just, or, or run, through, right. Run through it. Right. And I probably what made me a very, you know, well-known and successful trial attorney. Right. Because that's legal combat. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, stick with the alcohol for a second, because the, the, I'm, I, I try to take stock of my blessings, Jim, more than my failures, because my failures are vast and they were plastered all over the front page. Right. So as I would say, it's really easy to look them up. Um, but you know, when I, when I go into different recovery rooms, gone into different recovery rooms, you have guys in there who, you know, they're shaking because they need their next drink. For whatever reason, alcohol didn't have that physical hold on me um, in that same way, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, I, you know, I, I didn't drink in the mornings. I didn't wake up and have a drink, um, but it had a significant hold on me psychologically. And, and what helped me get through alcohol was mental health treatment. So, you know, men, men in particular don't engage in mental health treatment therapy as they should. Um, and in, in, because I had a tough upbringing, I sort of abandoned any level of God or spirituality, you know, in fact, it was actually 
pretty common story, especially for alcoholics, right? Whenever I won a trial or something great happened, it was all John. Whenever something lousy happened, it was all God, exactly. um, right? So, so and with the series, as I say, foxhole prayers, right? When I get mm-hmm. myself into something and pray, just get me out of this, it'll never happen again. Then it happens 24 hours later. Um, so once I addressed the, the mental health piece of it, right? It really came to grips with a very, very abusive and difficult childhood that I had. Resolving alcohol was a lot easier, right? And that was like, had I just gone to therapy earlier in life, I bet you I don't become the alcoholic I became. And I certainly don't commit the crimes I committed. And I I tell that because a lot of people don't want to talk about co-occurring diagnoses, right? And you know, I remember like, Jim, there was no, it's not like it was a surprise to me or it's not like I, that I was an alcoholic. It's not like I figured it out on June 17th, 2011. Right. Um, that was just the only time someone else was really paying the bill mm-hmm. for my alcoholism. And, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, I had to get a better relationship with God. I had to get a better relationship spiritually. Um, I had to come to grips with what I was good at, what I was bad at. Right. And, and I had to come to grips with the fact that if I started doing the right things, better things were going to start happening to me. And that's true. I mean, today, you know, I'm married, I got a baby daughter, I got another baby daughter coming in like six weeks or five weeks. So, you know, uh, couldn't be more blessed. Uh, but I do think that you, when bad things happen to you, you have really two choices, right? And your choices are to let it make you worse or try to learn something from it and get through it. And I've always tried to do the latter. Well, and when my head was clear, I've always tried to do the latter. And I think that the problem is, is that when enough bad things happen in life and when you cloud your mind with substances like alcohol and other things, you know, like I did, what happens is, is you're not looking, you're not, you're not seeing the frame clearly. You're not. Um, and, and I think that, that that is that is one of the things why it's important to pair therapy with any sort of detoxification or sobriety mm-hmm. right, program right. of sobriety. At least it was for me. It's not just uh, going cold turkey. There's got to be some work done inside. And there you are. Sure. Because, you know, you, you, you can't. Well, I should say you can't. It, it's very difficult to reverse that many habits. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause remember, like if everything went, went well, I drank, if I did, if I had a lousy day, I drank, if I won a case, I drank, if I lost a case, I drank, right. No matter what happened, I drank. Right. So right. Right. the only thing that I didn't drink is actually when I was trying cases, it was actually one of the things, my, my old law partner who's actually the godmother of my, of my, my daughter, a dear friend of mine. Um, you know, she used to, when, when we'd schedule trials, sometimes she'd cover an appearance and she knows, you know, we knew each other's mm-hmm. trial calendar. Mm-hmm. She would literally start putting trials like back to back to back to back to back, mm-hmm. knowing that's the only time I wouldn't drink. Yeah, you'd be sober all the way. Yep. Yep. <laughs> now, let me tell you about alcoholics blindness, right? The blindness of an alcoholic lawyer, right? So this is all going on. Veronica, my partner knows it. People close to me know what's happening. For me, I'm like, did y'all see how badass I was? I won three <laughs> trials in a row in six yes, weeks. I right. mean, nobody does that. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm like the King Kong of the legal community. Meanwhile, everyone's like this dumbass. Does he not see what's happening? But Hey, you couldn't see it where it was. Yep. No blinded, blinded myself, Jim. And, you know, and I want to just say, you know, the, it isn't easy, Jim, to talk about the worst times of your life all the time. And actually, many of my friends say, you know, yeah. why don't you just go do something else with your life and stop talking about it? And, you know, for me, whenever I do these kind of conversations, there's usually someone that can relate to the story or they have a kid or a nephew or a mm-hmm. niece that relates to the story. And if what I say helps anybody pull out of the skid before they hurt an innocent person, like I hurt an innocent person, before they have to live with the nightmares of knowing that you almost ex- extinguish someone's life, that you mm-hmm. you put a family on edge thinking their son, who was, I think, 18 at the time, was going to die. Before you live with that fear, pump the brakes, you know, no pun mm-hmm. intended, pump the brakes, get therapy, go to AA, go do whatever it is you got to do to yeah, get your yeah, life yeah. together before you have to live with what I have to live with. 
Well, there's a great figure, I'm sure you're familiar with him, named the Apostle Paul, who spent some time reflecting on his past life, even as he was very forward-looking, and as he talked about uh, choices he wished he had not made, it always turned into a redemptive help to someone else. And there you are, John. You you have taken, by the grace of God, uh, what might have been a tragic turn of events, uh, and some things you can't control, as in your victim's life, but in your own life could have been multiplied many more times tragically. But um, the Lord has intervened in you, and you are doing such great good. And how many thousands of people that are not named that you cannot know who have found a new page turned in their lives because of your story and your commitment? As you stated uh, out loud, I'm not sure you really maybe have comprehended how powerful it was. But in this conversation, you said, I, I am dedicating myself to save someone else from going through what I went through or some other innocent bystander from going through what I put on them. It is so inspiring. And thank you for being willing to just revisit it, even though it'd be a lot more fun to talk about your young daughter and the new one coming. That, that, is, <laughs> that is just a part of the whole life that you've lived and we're so thankful for what you do. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Well, thank you for amplifying these important issues, right? Without folks like you, Jim, bringing these stories and, and these perspectives uh, to the public, right? The public's not going to be educated on the subject in the way they need to be. So I, I hope this is the first of many times with you. Oh, I would love to talk to you some more. You know, just as you say that, I, I just have to add one little story as I'm trying to search in my mind about what I can do, but... Uh, I, I pastored a church for many years before I took my present post, which has given birth to this podcast. But um, there was a, a young man in his late 20s who wrote me a letter one day from a prison cell. And I don't know how it was, but somehow or another, he had got my name. And he just wrote this letter I got out of the blue. He just said, someday I'm going to get out. And if I get out, can I come to your church? And I wrote back and said, well, of course. And, you know, I don't know your story. I don't know who you are, but you know what? You'll be welcome here, so on and so forth. And I honestly never thought about it again until five years later, during Easter week, this young man comes up and says, I'm so-and-so, and I didn't register the name. And he said, one day I wrote you a letter and da da And it was the day he got out of the jail. He came to the church. And... I, that young man went on and, and truth be told, some people in the local church helped him find employment because he showed up and he wanted a second chance. And he had done some hard work in the prison and he, he now runs, he's, he has furnished my house with the job he has. Uh, by that, I mean, I need to buy some new furniture and he's my go-to and he has developed a career. And what I, I'm just, as you've been talking, John, I suddenly realizing, yes, there are so many people all around us if we would just pay attention and and think about that second right. chance. There you are. And you're at the front of the line doing it. Thanks for reminding us and inspiring us. John, God bless. Be encouraged and we'll be in touch. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.